there are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than golden retrievers. See you in there. Hey, this is Dre, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have the live show that we did in New York City with Rembrandt filling in for... Clint, who was unavailable, and Torre, who was the guest, the writer and critic. And the message for this week, before I talk about sort of season two, is that we need to make sure that we are mindful that the movement grows as we grow, and that we grow as the movement grows, that, uh, that we will change our perspective and we'll change our access to information and the way we think about issues. It'll just grow like over the years and like that'll change the way the work looks like and we can't be afraid of that we can't run from that we need to run towards it then we need to run towards the things that challenge us run towards our curiosity run towards the things that scare us that that really push us to commit and to recommit and the things that help our values become practices so don't be afraid of the movement growing as you grow don't be afraid of growing as the movement grows. This is the work. And I'm also excited to share that we're about to hit the one-year mark, which is sort of wild. 55 episodes, three live shows, and it's all thanks to you, our production team, and the incredible news crew and the collection of guests that we've had this season. We're going to put up some fresh conversations over the next few weeks and come back with the full news crew and a very special surprise guest for our second season, which launches on May 1st. Let's go. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. And now, the news. It's the news. I'm Brittany Packnett at Miss Pack Yeti on all social media. And I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. I am unfortunately not Clint Smith III. <laughs> so if you're here for him, just walk out very silently. Uh, I'm Rembert Brown uh, at... Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, at Rembert. And I'm DeRay at DeRay, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. Really? <laughs> so... Before we do the news, uh, so I like surprises a lot, and I have a surprise for, I love you, remember it. I just don't have a surprise for you today, but I do have a surprise for Sam and Brittany. It's under their chair. They do not know that there's a surprise under their chair. What is happening? But there's a surprise before the news. <laughs> Did we all get sparkly what? shoes, too? <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> yes! I'm like, hold on, hold on, wait, what? <laughs> oh my God, this is very exciting. Yes! Clink, clink to your shoe. Yeah, yeah. I'm ten and a half. (laughs) The thing though is that I didn't know your. You know, I could I could call people in their family and be like, I need like five minutes. I need a shoe size. Like, don't have a lot of time. Remember next time. It's fine. Next time. Aw, thank you. That's so sweet. I really have been lusting after those shoes. I'm very happy. They're very cool. You're welcome. 
<laughs> we all gonna just come out in these from now on. It's gonna be day after day after day. We're gonna have the silver. Yes. You got the pink. I got the pink. You got the yes. blue. Yes. Actually, wait. What's Clint gonna have? Oh yeah, green. Get... They make a green. Okay. They make a green. Is this okay, because cool. I don't tell Clint? Don't tell Clint, everybody. Don't put the pic. Don't tell Clint that they got shoes. Yes. Don't. Oh, okay. <laughs> Actually, the shoes are the perfect thing to celebrate today because today is Cardi B Day. All hey. of us. Cardi. Raise your hand if you know who Cardi B is. I'm kidding. Please. <laughs> okay. okay. Please. All right. We were nervous. Let's, let's start at the beginning. <laughs> There's a show called Love and Hip Hop. Hey. You know, Instagram we before should. that. Yeah, before Instagram that, there was Instagram. Before that. But most of us got introduced to her on Love and Hip Hop, which I should not be admitting that I watch. But, you know, every once in a while. And uh, she was on the show for like two seasons and was the breakout star and is a very talented MC. But what I love most about her is that, like, she is proof positive that when you are your authentic self that you can succeed. And she flies in the face of this idea that there is like a right way to do things, right? Yeah. Like she was an exotic dancer. She was on a show that everybody says you're not supposed to watch. She was like, everybody's like, you're gonna have 15 minutes of fame. And she was like, ah, my album already went gold. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like, Who did that? Was that, was that you? That, okay. My okay. pink shoes, I'm excited about that. Was that was good. I like it. But yes, happy Hardy B Day since yep. we're in New York. I'm like Cardi's number one fan, like secretly. Yes. If you don't know, like I'm always listening. New album is dope. If you haven't listened to it, please listen to it. Um, <laughs> it's already gold. It's already right? gold. Cardi, if you're listening, like you know, like come be on the pod. Maybe come be on the pod. Like we have a conversation. Like I don't know. Don't tell. You offset. all don't understand. Sam will like count off statistical information on fair housing in 1976, and they then be like, "Did you hear that new Cardi?" And you're like. <laughs> Literally in the group okay. text today, out of nowhere, he's like dropping Cardi lyrics. You're like, already? Sam, <laughs> what? Already? This, it just came out this morning. Sam's just annotating on Genius. Just like the new Cardi album. <laughs> Let me tell you though, I saw, I, I, not to brag, but I will brag because I love Cardi. I saw Cardi last night. She had a little listening session. She invited me personally. Not, that's not true. Um, but um, in the middle of playing her album, something went wrong with the, uh, with the speakers and she just cut the music and started singing. I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. No, she didn't. <laughs> it was the greatest thing. Did it she was really? Like, it was perfectly off pitch. <laughs> <laughs> a little flat, what I call it, a, a, a flat Bronx. Uh, <laughs> uh, I love her so much. I love her so much. Did you much. like her as much in person? Like, was it the same sort of magic? She's 10 times more endearing and charming in person. That she, and like, the way she like, does those selfie videos, and they're just incredible. Like, that's how she actually was. She was just on stage watching everyone take pictures of her and she just had a lollipop and she was just walking back and forth just like <laughs> hey, hey, hey. like you you were a perfect celebrity she's the perfect one <laughs> she kind of is I love she it. kind of is yeah yeah um another thing that i am very happy um that is back um you know bob mcnair the guy the owner of or the um oh, coach of the texans no, the, the owner, owner of the texans, texans. yes yeah. he's like my favorite old white man. Um, he, uh, he's like extra racist? <laughs> yeah, yeah he's, like, he's like wild. Um, last season, he made this comment that, um, that got him in a little hot water with like, the public and some of, his, uh, some of the other people on the team. He compared um, like the, the protests and everything. He said the NFL was turning into like, inmates running the prison. Mm. Yeah, y'all remember this? People didn't yeah. love that. And uh, <laughs> I don't know, you know. So, you know. Uh, anyway, um, and then, you know, he apologized, kind of hid, went to his like, rich place where you hide. And then, um, but out of nowhere this week came back, and I wrote, I had to write down the quote. He came back, did an interview, 
and said, the main thing I regret about that incident, and it was like a pause, he goes, is apologizing. Wow. And let me tell you, that is the firest take I've ever heard. <laughs> like, it, it was incredible. Like, I was like, it was so, like the audacity of it. The caucasity the of caucasity. it. The caucasity. Right. That yeah. was good. I'm yeah. far away from you today, so I can't like hit you. But like, that was good. You making like, me drop stuff? This, Lord. this might be just me, but sometimes when it goes that far on the spectrum, like I want to cry, but I just start laughing because I'm like, yo, you give no cares. Like, you will, like, that was a PG-13 like, podcast. Thank you, you for that? that one. I was like, you Oops. give no... <laughs> but yeah, I'm just like, I, you know, I just want to uh, shout out Bob McNair for just, you know, being for back. For standing up in his for just, you know, right. just yeah. like living your truth. Uh, <laughs> we like you, Rimmer. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, ten, and, <laughs> ten and a half. Ten and a half. Size true. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Uh, so for my news today, uh, we, we haven't actually talked about... Cambridge Analytica on the pod yet. Uh, And it felt like kind of a glaring omission at this point, but quite frankly, there's so much happening in the world. It was actually easy to talk about lots of other things for the last few weeks. But uh, when, when the news of the whistleblower first came out, people were so ready to like anoint him a saint. And they were like, oh my God, Let's be so thankful for the whistleblower. And I was like, "Mm, hold your horses, because I'm not about to just like crown a guy that helped rob entire nations of their democracy with the halo. Like, let's just wait and see what happens. Turns out I was right, as most (laughs) black women are. And uh, yeah, my first row of black women, you understand. My first row, shut up. Like all black women and Sam and my boyfriends. But <laughs> uh, uh, I, I was, it turns out, so he left Cambridge Analytica in, in 2014. We all thought it was because he had this, you know, clear this Jesus awakening. moment, this moral awakening, but it was because he was actually trying to use the stolen Facebook data to start his own company. Wow. Uh, and I was like, well, <laughs> I told y'all so. Uh, right, shocker. Uh, I'm just telling you, listen to black women. But um, it, what, that actually, like, wasn't the worst part to me. The worst part to me was that leading up to their participation in Brexit and obviously our election, um, Cambridge Analytica and this guy, Christopher Wiley, helped uh, (laughs) manage, if you will, over 200 elections around the entire world. They were involved in 200 elections, including in places uh, like Nigeria, where they encouraged people to run these terribly violent, catastrophic, um, Islamophobic ads uh, against the candidate who was Muslim who ended up winning. Uh, And also in the country of Kenya, where actually over 100 people were killed in election-related violence because of the kind of vitriol that occurred in that election. Uh, And so I bring this up for two reasons. One, we should be very clear that it is the height of caucasity and white privilege that the second that you have a moral awakening after thieving millions of people of their democracy that we want to anoint you some kind of savior and you expect us to pay you for it. Like, he was you on the just cover of The Guardian. Book, let's be clear. Um, so, like, I'm, I'm A, we just need to be clear about what that is, but B, they targeted young democracies on purpose, right? And if we think about how complicated it is for us to be getting out of the situation that we're in right now and for us to recover, I've just been thinking so much about what it's going to take for these younger democracies um, to actually find their way through this catastrophe. 
Yeah, I mean, it's why we, I'm glad we're talking about Cambridge Analytica because the story just keeps getting worse. Like not only Cambridge Analytica, but like Facebook in general, that whole mess. But at first it was, you know, there's 50 million Americans data has been stolen, like personal data, your preferences, like everything about what you care about, stuff that informs your politics and your approach to the world was stolen. And then we learned it was actually 87 million Americans. So it's like, like one in four, one in five Americans. And I bet it was all in the swing states, right? They won't tell us that part, though. And, you know, what's wild about it is even though it's been exposed, you know, there was a, the whistleblower for his own motives said that this was happening. Like, the data is still out there, right? Like, it didn't, they didn't delete the file, right? That data exists. It's probably been shared to other groups, right? And the question is, like, what do we do now that not only Cambridge Analytica, but all of these other, you know, right-wing, racist-aligned groups probably have access to the same people in the same databases of all of our information, and I don't know like the answer to that, but it is wild to think that like the opposition has all of that. And we over here trying to, you know, collect some emails, you know, sign up to <laughs> yeah. this, you know, like 87 million people. Like, you know how yeah. expensive it would be to collect that? Like, it's ridiculous. So, yeah, I, I don't know how we get out of that. I think the second piece about Nigeria, which was interesting that you said, Brittany, was despite the is- Islamophobic ads, it still didn't work. Yeah. So, like, what does that say about us, where they tried the same thing and it, and it worked? Um, so, I'm going to just leave that there. <laughs> you know what's, what's wild is, like, I was just, you know, I was trying to get through these, like, often, like, dense Cambridge Analytica pieces. And I remember that, like, like, eight years ago, like, the most stressful thing to me about Facebook was that I needed to untag photos before I applied for a job. <laughs> I was like, this is why Facebook is going to end me. <laughs> that because, and, like, your mom getting on yeah, Facebook. Yeah, because, like, one day, like, God, like, my mom might end up on Facebook one day. <laughs> and, but I got to untag these photos, you know, in case I ever get a job. And, like, that's just, like, like the fa- Facebook 9.0 that we're at now, it feels like, like to be of that generation that, you know, basically... Um, came into Facebook when Facebook began. Yeah. It's just wild to see how it is turned into what it is now. And it's, it's, it's absolutely terrifying. I'll say two meta moments before I talk about the news. One is that we are never together when we record the news. We always record it on the phone. So it's sort of funny because like <laughs> being, seeing Sam's face when he talks, I'm like, yes, that's so great. Um, <laughs> I'm like, oh, look at that Facebook person. Uh, the other thing is we didn't really introduce Rembert. Rembert is an amazing writer who used to write like a grand Rembert has a job. Yeah, also. Rembert had a job. <laughs> Question mark, I don't know about the job today. But uh, he had a great job. <laughs> um, and he's done a lot of great writing. But I, when I think about Facebook, you know, we met with Cheryl Sandberg. We, you, all of us were there. Yeah. We met, we met with Cheryl. Um, I'm so, what? Sorry, he wasn't there. Keep going. Oh, what? <laughs> She's far away from me today, so I can't hit her. Um, we met with Cheryl, and Cheryl was interesting because she, we're like, do you think Facebook influenced election? She's like, no. And we're like, okay. And then she's like, <laughs> literally. Next this question. is like, and then she goes, we registered more people to vote than both political parties. And we're like, did Facebook influence the election? She's like, no. And you're like, okay, Cheryl. And then we're like, Cheryl, what are we going to do about their private Instagram accounts and their private Facebook groups that are hate accounts? We know it, right? Did, she, is, say, did, did she say no? <laughs> is that just her only answer? Right. That's what it felt like. She goes, DeRay, we're going to make 
artificial intelligence is going to fix those. And we're like, girl, when? Right? Like, when is when? And also, I don't really trust artificial intelligence yeah. like you do. Yeah. Y'all using data to do a whole lot of things. Get somebody to hack into them accounts, right? Like, yes. y'all doing all this <laughs> other stuff, giving away all our phone numbers. Somebody needs to go shut down, like, the white supremacist Instagram account. But what did get announced today, there are two things. Uh, one is that big Facebook groups, we don't know what, uh, what the number looks like now, but large Facebook groups, whoever moderates it will have to show their identity. That is a new thing. Like they have to upload like government ID or something, so that's sort of new. And the second thing is that it came out, and we even talk. We don't. We don't. We also don't talk about the news before we talk about it for the podcast. So no clue what you guys think. But I'm interested. <laughs> uh, Mark, did you did you hear that Mark Zuckerberg had the ability to unsend messages in Facebook Messenger? That was like sort of the big news today. Is that oh, nobody what? else has that power, but like people at Facebook leaked that like he can actually go into the messenger and just like take the messages back, which is not a what? power that anybody else has. But so, we can't even get an edit button on Twitter. Look right, at this. Right, right. <laughs> Look at this. Two different companies, Brittany. Two different companies. Two different companies. I'm just <laughs> saying technology. We have the technology. I'm people. just saying technology. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the internet. Um, so yeah, so Mark is trying to like explain away the fact that he. So what they what they subsequently said is that this was like after the Hollywood emails leaked, they needed like an extra. Li- this was like what their attempt was, and you're like, I don't even know what that means. This is a Facebook Messenger. That has nothing to do with Hollywood emails leaking. But yeah, Mark Zuckerberg can go in and un he can like erase and unsend messages in Facebook Message. That was like the the big news today. The whole thing is scary. I think I was looking last night at where they actually categorize you in your account. So, you know, if you go and make a Facebook ad, you can pick the categories for your target audience. And it keeps all of this information on us, including what they presume to be our political ideology. So I was stunned by that. I don't even know about the And, you know, messages. they keep, too... Um, Sam, I'm not making this up, right? But they keep... Because Sam's like the check. This is what I'm about to say. And like, he's about to steal it. So. Oh, go, go, it's better for you. Go ahead. <laughs> no, no. I was going to say that they, they keep records of your calls, right? So if you have Facebook Messenger installed on your phone. Is that what you're going to say? No, but that's good too. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so they keep records on your calls. So I went into Facebook. You can actually download all of your user data, which like, they don't tell you you can do all of this stuff or like, what they're doing. You just sort of sign up, create an account, and you go with it. And so I downloaded all my user data. It had everyone I had ever called on my cell phone going back like years. Like I found old people's phone numbers that I didn't have anymore, which was cool. But like, <laughs> like, like thank you, Facebook. But yeah, like, like I didn't know that they were tracking this. And, you know, it's, it's incredible the amount of data that they have on you. Not just Facebook, but like all of the different apps that we use and, and platforms. And the fact that we're not really aware of what they're keeping, how it's being used, how we're being targeted, content, whether it's commercial ads or political ads or what have you, and I think all of that needs to be addressed. Like, we should have some sort of transparency about that. We should have some sort of control over what can be shared, how they use that data, and, mm-hmm. and currently that's not the case. So, like, just a, a quick question. Like, at this point, like, 2018, wh- how do you still use Facebook? Like, to what extent do you still use it? Like, it's just like we're in this moment now where, like, people are like, <laughs> The Let's birthday email fa- is really important. So when I see that email, <laughs> I'm like, am I calling anybody to say happy birthday? That's how I use it. I love how that's like the exchange. It's like, I'll give you all of my information forever, but I I just really in return, I just want to know when it's people's birthdays. It's kind of the email this morning. I didn't call none of them people. I was like, is it? Nope. Are you one of those people who now just kind of spams the list and you're like, HBD, HBD, HBD? No. Those people are the worst. People people like think I'm always really busy anyway, so they are okay. They don't expect you. But I literally, I look at it every morning and I'm like, am I calling any of these people? Today was not a day for that. 
but <laughs> I appreciate that. That is a good service. Yeah, I mean, like, if it wasn't for... <laughs> it is a good I mean, service. Thank you, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, <laughs> if it wasn't for, like, passwords at this point, just, like, the, like, I've forgotten every password to every single thing, like, the fact that it says, like, connect via Facebook, that's probably that's 95% of the way that's I use, real. reason I use Facebook. Um, and that, that's, half, that's half of how all of this right. information is <laughs> yeah, shared. it's incredible. Like, the other, like, the other 5% are, like, my mom's high school classmate sending me uh, like fake news about Farrakhan or something. Like, it's like, I'm just like, I'm like, what is this place for me anymore? Like, I, like as, a, as a journalist, like, I used to use it almost primarily to promote the stuff I wrote to the people who didn't use Twitter. Yeah. But like, at this point, I'm like, I don't really care that much anymore. What I was going to say is that they actually keep a log of everything you type in the, um, what's that box the called? The search box? No, like the, how, like, the box the on top. The status bar? Yeah, like the, that box. Yeah. They keep a log of <laughs> that. I feel like I'm like 80 years. I'm like that box on Facebook. <laughs> um, but that box, they keep a log of everything you type, whether you actually post it or not. They're like Facebook actually has a record of it. See? Okay. All he right. Call the whole thing up. You know, you know, at like two in the morning, like you're just like, I'm really mad. Like I'm a type. <laughs> Wait, let me delete that. Yeah, they have that. They have that. <laughs> yeah, they have it. That is oh. actually, that is sort of frightening too. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are golden retrievers. Which means Tubi is more popular than using meat-flavored toothpaste. More popular than never figuring out what W-A-L-K spells. More popular than kicking your leg when a human rubs your belly just right. Tubi. It's more popular than Golden Retrievers. See you in there. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell y'all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like, I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. 
Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. Can I segue into more evil? Sure. <laughs> Let's good go. news. I, yeah, I feel like it. I have like a That's really, what I'm here for. I have a really good. Um, so I'm just going to read a tweet from today from Governor Rick Snyder of Michigan. <laughs> I heard it um, wrong or two. <laughs> data has shown Flint's water is testing the same as or better than similar cities across the state. Therefore, the remaining four distribution centers will close and deliveries will end once the current supply of state-funded bottled water is exhausted. Wow. So basically, once that's up, they're not giving bottled water to the residents of Flint. And they basically are using like the easiest way to get out of giving them water. Like yeah. the, the issue is the pipes. Yes. The pipes have not been replaced. The pipes are still uh, a mess. But even though the water quality has slightly improved to reach levels of other cities that are also struggling. Yes. He's like, okay. We're done, which is like, to me, it's, it's, it's one of those things where you're just like, how, how obvious does one have to be? Like, you're not even hiding yeah. it anymore. Like, that's not, and for it, like, to see that as a resident of Flint, like, what everyone knows, like, there's no reason to trust yeah. this government at all, because the entire thing is like, they were purposely lied to. So, that's just, that happened today. Yeah, just a couple of, a couple like of hours an hour yeah. before we came on. So here are the technicalities of it, and we've talked about this on the pod. Essentially, as you were saying, the issue is the pipes. So the water is now up to uh, EPA standards on the amount of lead and copper in the water, but it's still not safe to drink because 20,000 pipes have to be replaced in the city. The goal by the end of 2018 is to replace 6,000 pipes. So just think about the fact that there, there will, if they're on track, and clearly this is not a place where infrastructure is very strong, if they're on track by the end of 2018, they'll still need to replace 14,000 pipes, but there will be no more bottled water given out if it is run out. The other thing that we know is that 3,000 areas in the U.S. tested to have double as much lead as Flint at the height of the controversy. So at Flint at its worst was half as bad as 3,000 other places in the country. So when you say we're testing better than these other places, it's like, so basically you're telling me it's not sludge? Like, is that really the standard that we're going by? The other problem here, and I heard this said by a water activist actually from Flint uh, when I was in Detroit, the last time I was there, she said, Capitalism has convinced us that water should be something that we pay for. That like you can bottle it and you can box it up and you can actually sell to people what should be free. And I was like, dag, yeah. you are absolutely, I mean, thanks for this, thank you for the refreshments. Yeah. 
But 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 this idea, right, that what people should have access to, whether it is in Flint, whether it is at Standing Rock, this thing that we should have access to that we all need to live is something that comes either at a cost or through some kind of government barrier or red tape is exactly the problem. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think pretty much everything's been said on this, but the last thing is just I think it's so telling that the comment was it's cool because all of these other places are equally as messed up. It was not like we're going to set a goal that people actually have drinkable water. It was just, we just want to make sure that people have as undrinkable water as similar areas in Michigan. And as you said, Brittany, 3,000 places across the country have water that is worse. So like, that actually doesn't mean anything as a standard. It doesn't mean anything from a point of view of data. It, it just really means that it's a way of getting around the fact that folks are going to have undrinkable water and the governor really doesn't care anymore. Yeah. And, and I think that that's evil. What I'll say about the human impact of this is that the problem in Flint was lead and there's no cure for lead. It always shocks me when people talk about lead and like don't talk about the fact that there's no cure. So kids that are poisoned by lead, there is no cure. There's no cure for lead. That should always be your top line. No cure for lead. So kids that get exposed, we know that it leads to learning disabilities later in life. So the most important thing to happen, the moment we think exposure has taken place is to test kids. So there is a crisis in Flint around testing that like the government is not testing all the kids. So there's a lawsuit to force the government right now to test every single kid. That's one part. The second part is that in Flint, it's one of the biggest declines in third grade literacy that we've ever tested ever. So if you test the kids sort of before and then after, it's like, it's like over a 30% decline in literacy. It's like you can actually see. It's not normally the learning effects of uh, a lead are things that we see sort of at the generation level. Like you sort of see kids as they, as they go sort of all the way through school. But it's so concentrated because the exposure was so concentrated itself that you can actually see and chart the learning loss right now. Like that is crazy. Top line, no cure for lead, no cure for lead. Like that's why this really matters. It, it's not like, it's not like you get exposed and then like you go to the hospital and you drink that thing and like everything's okay. No cure for lead. So my piece of news is about Harvard. So a group of Asian American students, students called, I think it's Students for Fair Admissions, uh, sued Harvard University saying that they had an unconstitutional admissions practice that was discriminating against Asian American students who were, as a group, higher performing, and therefore uh, they were not able to get in because preference was given to other people of color. Uh, and that was the argument that was made. This group, by the way, is led by Edward Blum, who is the guy who represented Abigail Fisher, Stay Mad Abby in University of Texas. I forgot about Everybody Stay Mad like, Abby. Abby. <laughs> Which they lost. So, so I guess his strategy so was like, now he's like, you know, maybe <laughs> right. we can shift this up and, and we'll take this case and it might be a little bit different. Who knows? The, the thing that's interesting about it is that the argument that they're making is that they're discriminating against Asian students because they're allowing uh, black and brown students to get in, and that's like the, the crime here, right? And what's wild about Harvard, and not just really Harvard- Is that really the argument? Yeah, the, the argument is that they, that they are biased against Asian American students with higher test scores and allowing you know, black and brown students to get in who have lower test scores, is like the argument. That like test scores somehow are the only way that we're evaluating students and, and your capacity and potential to learn and, and be incredible. The thing that's interesting about the argument though is that if you actually look at the data, what you find is that in Harvard, you get legacy preferences. So you get, you're three times more likely to be admitted if you're a legacy student. Legacy students, meaning they define it by having one parent or two parents that went to Harvard. 
18% of the recently admitted class in Harvard got legacy preferences. 93% of students who get legacy preferences at Harvard are white, which means 17% of the incoming class at Harvard this year were white students who benefited from preferences because of the fact that they had parents who went to Harvard. The entire class of black students that year was 14.6%. So there were more white students benefiting from legacy admissions, not because they came from disadvantaged communities, not because they faced hardship in getting to Harvard, not because they had a, a, a richer uh, arrangement of life experiences uh, and challenges that they could bring to the table in conversations around diversity. No, not because of any of that, because they had a parent that just happened to be privileged also, so they get a privilege too. And none of the arguments brought forward were challenging legacy preferences. They chose to challenge the fact that there were black students, black and brown students at Harvard that got in, and somehow that was like the issue, and we're just going to leave legacy alone. And this is not only a Harvard issue. If you look across elite institutions across the country, that tends to be the norm. There tends to be more white students accepted on legacy preferences than the entire black student body. So I'm going to just leave that out there and, and, and <laughs> let's think about like, it. And what? That's yeah, what's yeah. going on. <laughs> Drop the Sharpie. You know, but this is, this is one of the greatest lies that the devil ever told, that people of color should be in competition with one another. And I say this all the time because white supremacy and oppression functions in such a way that it convinces people of color to fight over dinner scraps while white folks are feasting in the other room. And I'm like, this is not where, this is not where the struggle is, right? Um, and I am I'm dis certainly disturbed um, by the source of this, right? Because, you know, if, if you stand it up with Abigail Fisher, I've got questions about whether or not you really are committed to the uplift of people of color. Like, I just have suspicions. Uh, <laughs> just, just a few. I like that. Uh, and I, you know, I, I experienced something similar to this. Um, when I was an undergrad, I went to Washington University in St. Louis. I got a full ride, which meant that as soon as that package came through, my mom was like, that's where you're going to school. Right. And, uh, <laughs> but my, my scholarship program was named for John B. Irvin, who was the first dean, at, first black dean, rather, at WashU. Um, and it was the John B. Irvin Scholars Program for black Americans at the time. We also had the Anika Rodriguez Scholars Program for, um, for Latinx Americans. We had lots of scholarships, also, you know, different preferences and all the kinds of things that you're talking about, Sam. Um, but there was an organization that had the phrase civil rights in their name that was literally going around to schools with race-based scholarship programs, threatening to sue them if they continued. And I was like, how dare you just spit on the legacy of civil rights and call this actually what you're doing? So the source really does matter. And we've since had to change the program because otherwise we were gonna lose federal funds. Like all of these things were very real and it happened at other schools. Um, the other thing that I wanna point out though, just to be very clear, is that the model minority myth is very damaging to Asian American Pacific Islander communities because when you actually look at the hundreds of nationalities and languages spoken, we are not experiencing high achievement all across the board. So if you talk to Asian American and Pacific Islander activists, they talk about the importance of data disaggregation. Because if you don't tease out the ethnic and nationality data, then you're actually just going to think that all Asian American Pacific Islander people are doing well, and that's just not true. Um, and so I, I, you know, there, there are lots of sides to this thing, but I just wanted to make sure that that's very clear. Like, we're in New York City. Actually, the highest rate of poverty is in, in this city are in Asian American Pacific Islander communities, which a lot of people don't know. Um, and so it's important for me to say that as a black woman and actually try to exhibit the solidarity that I want people to have with me because I just don't believe in people of color fighting each other when we got a much bigger fight in front of us. Preach. <laughs>
I mean, I was going to say the ex- verbatim the same thing. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, I mean, you said it all. Like, I, I think <laughs> if there's... We're going to invite you back one day. Yeah. <laughs> we like Remmer. I think there's one, one thing that I have found myself having kind of a 180 in terms of the way I see the world in the past 18 months or so is I used to think of the world very black and white. Like, I mean, I think like a product of being from a city like Atlanta that, you know, through my lens was just like there are a bunch of black people and there are some white people and that's it. I think in the past, you know, like since the election, a lot of my thinking has gone into the direction of like every type of disadvantaged group needs to be focused on a common, Mm -hmm. like a common group that has like been like ruining, like messing with all of our lives in different ways. And we all have our own like our own list of demands and our own list of things that need to be fixed. But when it comes down to it, like it is, there's enough history to prove that each one of us operating in a silo trying to get stuff fixed on our own, like might not work. You know, we kind of got to get on the same page. So yeah, I mean, like, I think that's, there's a, like with a study like that, it's like, the, the, we're not focused. Like y'all, y'all need to, like what you're bringing up, there's some, there's some validity to it, but like, don't forget what, like who we actually need to be thinking about. I will say, too, this makes me think about we're doing a big project right now on the racial wealth gap that we haven't launched yet, but will launch soon, hopefully. And it's interesting because when we talk to not when we talk to experts about the wealth gap, they get it. They know the difference between income and wealth. Income is like money you make today. Wealth is sort of the total sum of all the things you own. Wealth is the easy way that we think about it is like income is money you can spend today. Wealth is money you can spend in the future. Right. That's sort of our simple way to think about it. So they know that. And then they know that the single biggest asset that people own is a house. So like home ownership is one of the biggest drivers of whether people have wealth or not. We talk to non-experts almost immediately people say one of two things. Either they say small businesses, which is sort of fine-ish, or they say education. And it's so interesting because people really do believe that education is this like thing that like closes, that closes every sort of gap. And education does a lot of important things. We were both teachers, Clint's a teacher. So we believe in education. Education doesn't close the wealth gap, but it has sort of like a negligible impact on wealth. And the reason that it doesn't really have an impact on wealth is because racism is just so strong. So what we find in the data is that white high school dropouts have more wealth than black college graduates. So like the positive effects are actually just wiped out because of racism. So when we think about some of the solutions, it is about how do we ask the questions deeper and like tease it just a little deeper because because people's gut is like not always what is right. Even, you know, Clint on one of the early podcasts talked about ban the box and ban the box across the country was the effort to make sure that on job applications, uh, there was not a box that said that like you had been convicted of a crime before. And black people, when the first studies that came out showed that black people actually did worse in the workplace after we banned the box. And you're like, well, why are they doing worse? Because we banned the box. And instead of just assuming that those black people who checked the box were criminals, they just assumed that everybody was a criminal. And you're like, well, it's like you see like even the best policy run up against straight up racism. So this is about how do we name it so that people know where the fight is. Now, my news, uh, I was going to talk about Wisconsin, but I think I'm because I'm upset. You remember this will be new for you. Sorry. We put the news in a group chat and I'm changing my news on stage, which is not fair. To remember. It's <laughs> um so I'm going to ask you to... You think just because you gave us some free shoes, this is I okay. I know. <laughs> but you're, sorry. But you, you'll be ready. You, just wait. So to the person next to you, I want you to tell them something you can buy for more than $200 right now. The person next to you. Them shoes. <laughs> you already know what this is going to be. Um, okay. 
tell him. Tell him what it is. What's your mind? Okay. Avocados. Yeah. <laughs> Avocado <laughs> toast. For two hundred dollars. Okay, bring it back Remember in five, freak nick shirt. four, <laughs> three. Jordan, Jordan's like two. Yeah, let's do that. One. Okay, now tell the person next to you something you can buy for more than three hundred dollars. Right now. Okay. Uh, iPad. <laughs> Why are you so loud? He's so loud. Eyeglasses. We can hear you. Mm. <laughs> okay, bring it back in five, four, three. Two, one. So before I tell you why I did that, I'm obsessed with this idea that this is not a system of constants. It's not a system of chances. It's a system of choices. And that the choices that people have made over the long haul are the things that like put people in the positions they are today. We think about things like mass incarceration. I asked you to do that because in Virginia, theft over $200 is a felony. In Florida, theft over $300 is a felony. In both of those states, when you become a felon, you permanently lose the right to vote. That is a choice. So I wanted to talk about like some of the small ways or like, you know, we organize around like the loud trauma. So the louder the trauma, the bigger the organizing. But there's all this quiet trauma that people don't know. Like people don't know that theft over $200 is a felony and that's pretty low. In Oklahoma, up until 2001, theft over $50 was a felony. That is a choice. And like, what does it mean when we set up a system that like, again, if I ask you what's a felon, most people say these like heinous, heinous things, but it's like there are a lot of people in jail for like not, not what you thought they were. And like Sam, we were going back and forth over some stats. Um, and Sam was like, Dre, did you know that we arrest more people for weed than all violent crimes combined? A plant. Yeah. It's like, that is nuts. So that's my news. My news is like system of, system of choices. <laughs> Sorry. Discuss. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm just sort of responding in the moment, but I think... <sighs> It is wild when you think about the history of how those choices are made, right? Not only is it a system of people in positions of power making choices to criminalize particular things or to defund particular things and invest in other things, but those choices are made, most of those choices happened a long time ago. I mean, we think about how racist the choices are being made now. Like, the choices were being made by people even more racist before us. And that's when, the, that's when these laws were made. That's when the $300 thing was made. The, the rule in Florida around you lose the, the, vote, the right to vote for the rest of your life, that was made in 1868. 1868. Why was it made in 1868 right after the Civil War? Well, because black people got the right to vote. And when black people started voting, it turns out that there were more registered black voters in Florida at that time than white voters. Mm-hmm. And so the white people in charge in the state legislature came together and they adopted a constitutional amendment that prohibited you from ever being able to vote if you were convicted of a felony. And at the same time, they passed a package of black codes. So we talk about black codes uh, in part of the Jim Crow era. They passed a package of black codes that specified that made the choice to call particular things felonies that black people were more likely to be arrested for. And that's the law that's on the books today. That's why there's 1.6 million people in Florida who can't vote. That's why 40% of black men in the state of Florida have been permanently banned from voting. In the state of Florida, I mean, we talk about the importance of political power. Florida is the epicenter of that. That's where the presidency is decided. It's where you know, two Senate seats, you've got the governorship. All of that is influenced by this law to this day. Sam just, Sam just said something that just blew my mind. It wasn't the stats. It's just that I just realized that this is the least racist moment ever. You could, I mean, you know, if you go back like two years ago, you could make the argument. <laughs> I don't know if that's a little bit better. Is that what Sam said? I don't know if 
about the least, but you are right that but it like, has been but, worse than what we've got now. But like, like I mean, it's I love just that like, was your takeaway. I was like, where's Remember going with this? Well, <laughs> with the exception I also of this administration, I think you could make. I just like, I, I just like <laughs> these like things that are still upheld. Like it's, it just kind of blows my. I mean, there's just so much racism to undo. Yeah. That sometimes it's just like it's like a. It's like a puzzle. Like, and you're just like, and all the pieces are light blue. You're like, I don't even know how to put this together. Like, where, like, <laughs> all the like there are no end pieces. Like, I don't I like even know that. where to start. Like, I, I mean, like which that. is like the work y'all are doing. But honestly, that's what gives me hope, right? I think about two things often. One, that this is not the worst our state, our country has ever been in. And two, that our ancestors did far more with far less. That is literally why I'm able to sit here and have this conversation with you, right? So, like, yes, things have been bad. Yes, there are things that have been around for a long time that we are still working to dismantle. Yeah. And yet, the fact that we have made even the amount of progress that we have, have um, is because of the determination of folks who are fighting against even more and had fewer resources to do it. So, if, if anything, it is a reason to hope and to continue the work. I agree. Cool. Well, we're going to transition now to talk to Toure. Woo! Love you, news people. Take your shoes. Take your shoes. <laughs> don't go anywhere more politics the people's coming as a chef and a restaurant owner i'm as meticulous about my cookware as i am about my ingredients that's why i love made in cookware each pan they make isn't just designed to perform it's crafted to last as a mom i love that i can trust made in it's made from the world's finest materials so i can feel good about what i'm feeding my family I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are influencers on the internet, which means Tubi is more popular than sponsored posts for digestive enzymes and high-coverage foundation, more popular than soft-launching your boyfriend, more popular than making boomers explode with rage when you tell them how much you make on a single post. Tubi, it's more popular than influencers. See you in there. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Give it up for Tori. Hello, Toure. Hi, Toure. How are you? I'm going to read from my little card. Toure is a writer, producer, commentator, father, and husband. And husband based here in New York. He has two adorable kids. Uh, how, old, how old are Hendrickson? Ten and nine. And Toure, in case you're wondering, is a fantastic uncle and babysitter. And if you need all-day baby care, he's the best. I had Hendrix for a whole day, and at the end, we're like coming back. I tweet, like, I'm with a nine year old all day. What can we do? And people on Twitter are amazing. Like, Riverside Church literally opens up the top of the church. They're like, you can come do a tour of the Bells. I was like, that was great. Went to the math museum, great museum for kids. If you care about math, um, he really liked it. He took my, so- my 10 year old to Soho House. I did. We went to Soho House <laughs> for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Um, you've seen pasta. him on TV. He's been a writer for longer than I've been alive. And I'm mean, <laughs> kidding. <laughs> no, thank you. Uh, 
But I wanted to have a conversation with you about where we are in this moment with the media. But before we start mm. there, you've done a ton of like really cool interviews. You have a podcast that'll be here in the, in the podcast too. So you're still doing cool interviews. Can you talk about an interview you'll never forget that you oh did? Oh my God. So many. I you mean, you did like, that R Kelly interview. The art. Well, you want to talk about R Kelly? You want to talk about Kanye? I'm just saying, to- I'm, you, do you remember the R Kelly interview he did? No. Wow. Wow. This is great. This is great. Like every five years needs to hear the R Kelly story anew. It keeps coming back. Y'all will see online the interview. Somehow BET has scrubbed all but 1% of the interview from the, you think the internet never forgets? They forgot most of my R Kelly interview, but this part remains. Um, He had just come off of his trial for sexual assault, which he somehow got off on, even though everybody in the world had seen this videotape. This was before uh, the internet really was, was, was a big deal. Everybody had seen this videotape where he was having sex with several girls. And in the final one, I'm sorry, he urinated on her. We saw that on the tape. Turns out she, right. People remember this, right? She was like 16 years old and he went to trial. He got off on the trial. So BT had me sitting with him for an hour in a nice Chicago hotel and the core moment, I wanted to ask him, do you like underage girls? Like, can you look me in the eye and tell me, no, I don't like underage girls? And I had like a three-question arc that I was going to hit him with. No gotcha question, but we're just going to walk through like easy question, a little bit harder, a little bit harder, right? <laughs> and the first question was, do you like underage girls? <laughs> Right? Easy. You're, well, that's- you would think it was easy, but it was tricky because, and interviewers, like, just tinkering with words can make a huge difference. One word is a huge difference in two different questions. And we'd been talking about underage girls, and he'd been trying to locate it around 14, 13 year olds. Like, no, I don't like 14 year olds. That's disgusting. How dare you ask me that? So I asked him, do you like underage girls, like straight up? And his crisis manager, this guy in this suit, right, came running from the other room. No, you can't ask him that. And R. Kelly said, no, no, I I got this. I want to answer this question. So, well, you're the client. No problem. So he sits down. He's done. (laughs) He's like, I did my job. Right. So I start to ask him, do you like underage girls? But at the last second, something said If I say underage, he will go, no, I don't like 14-year-old girls. And that will be the end of that. So at the last second, I said, uh, teenage girls. Do you like teenage girls? Much harder question for him. And he says, what you mean by teenage? (laughs) And you can see, like, the sweat starting and the drool starting. and It's like that Robert Townsend moment, right? When he's like, don't mention drugs unless you got some, right? right? Where Hollywood (laughs) shuffle. I miss that one. and, And... I said, girls who are teenagers. Like, that's what we mean. And apparently, I made a face because when they said, like, what do you mean teenage? Because, like, I couldn't walk down the street after an air without somebody, oh, my God, your face when R. Kelly said. And I was trying to let him know that he had not said something stupid, even though I knew he had said something really stupid. Um, and yeah, that, that interview lives forever. You can see that piece online and you'll see that I'm changing at the last second from the underage to teenage. But I mean, there's, there's, there's been a lot of great, there's been a lot of fun well, I don't stories. think I know the Kanye interview. Do I know the Kanye interview? I don't know. So there's a whole, there's, there's multiple Kanye stories within one long day with Kanye. I'll give you the second story, which is dope. 
Hey, do you want to hear both the stories? Or you want to hear tell, the, tell us the, the yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. 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 All right. So first album, Rolling Stone sends me out to Jersey to talk to Kanye. He's living in Jersey in like a high rise, but he's on like the 18th floor, not when the top floor. When was this? Was his mom alive? First album. Oh, yes. Okay. Mom's alive. Okay. Dr. Don. I talked to Dr. West for the story. She was lovely. She was brilliant. She talked about that she spoiled him, that she worshipped the ground he walked on. So the ego that you see began from this single mother single child relationship where she was like you can do anything which is great it's great i fully applaud her giving him that confidence because the because nobody was with it jay-z was like you're the producer you can't rap dame dash was the one like no we need to listen to him um the first album jesus walks is on the radio i get to his place in uh jersey and he's still taking like an hour to get dressed like which polo shirt ah, i can't figure it out so I'm walking around his apartment, which might have been as big as this place here, and, uh, and I see there's a poster on the wall, like about this size, which is him in performance like this. <laughs> and so when he finally comes out, all load out, I'm like, um, why do you have a poster of you on the wall in your house? And he actually said something really brilliant. He said... I need to cheer for me before anyone else can cheer for me. Right? Look and at that Kanye really, really wisdom. Brilliant, right? That and was I, early Kanye early, wisdom. Early Kanyeism. And you see the beginning of the megalomaniacal Kanye that we have now, but the, the, the planting details, details. of deep self belief was happening on a conscious level. And I fully support that. Um, I would not encourage you to put an actual poster of yourself on the wall in your house, but like do it in your mind, right? Like, you, like be a big fan of yourself. So, so that moment happens, but then he's also showing me his new Jesus piece, right? And I'm the first one outside the family to see the Jesus piece. And Jesus Walks is on the radio where he's like, you know, Jesus is black, but we'll talk about that later. But this Jesus has all the colored stones from Jacob the jeweler. And the eyes are like blue, like the sneakers, right? And the hair is clearly blonde. And he's like, look at my chain, $20,000. Isn't it great? And I'm like, I thought you thought Jesus was black. <laughs> you said that? Oh, no doubt. Like, what? The, like, of course. And we, and so he's like, eh. So we go on through our day. And like 30 minutes later, he's like, you really think it looks like white Jesus? And I'm like, yeah. like out of nowhere. And then like another 30 minutes later, we're talking about something else. He's like, you really think it looks like white Jesus? Is this, is this a problem? And I'm like, yeah, money. Like, what are you doing? So he tells his manager, kill our next three meetings. We're going to Jacob the Jewelers. We're going to change this thing. So we go to Jacob the Jewelers. You were with them? No doubt. Oh my God. No doubt. I love it. They had you for the whole day. So we, oh yeah, so we're up in Jacob the Jewelers, which is right across from Fox News on 6th Avenue. I think it's 40th Street or whatever. And Never uh, been there. I can't afford anything the, from Jacob. On the second floor, I know you know. You stay up in there. Th um, this is as much jewel as I got. And Jacob brings out all the colored stones, and he's like, whatever we can do to please you. But you can't just take out the blue eyes and put in brown, and it doesn't work. So he's like... Okay, I'm going to call it Grandma's Jesus. I'm like, no, man, that's <laughs> whack. So, so fine. So we go, he's like, I will come back and make another one that is clearly a black Jesus. And he's like, all right, whatever. So we go through our whole day, and we end up in the Maybach outside tiny Keene College in New Jersey, where he's going to do a show. And we're sitting in the Maybach, and then he sees like 40 yards away, oh, 
there's Jay-Z's Maybach. Let's go talk to Jay. And I had done a bunch of stories with Jay at this point, so we had a professional relationship. So Kanye runs over and jumps in the front seat. And of course, I'm not missing this. Kanye <laughs> talking to Jay. So I'm running right behind him, and I'm like right in the window of the back seat. Like Jay's like there, and I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? <laughs> like total like little brother, like what's happening? So I'm like practically leaning into the car so I can hear everything. And Kanye's in the front like, yo, check out my chain. And there's this really beautiful woman who music industry folks will know was also there. Um, and he's like, that was like, I don't know back, her. It comes up, it comes okay, up, it comes, okay, okay. up it comes back, it comes back. So Kanye's like, check out my chain, y'all. And Jay's and the woman are like, oh, yeah, that's hot. That's what's up. And then I say, but it's white Jesus. <laughs> Awful. Like, you're supposed to be recording the story. You are part of the no, story. No, no, see, I Yes, yes. And for profile writers, it is okay to occasionally instigate a little bit. <laughs> the first, like, 10 years of my career, I was super fly on the wall. I would have never done that. And I'm like, Dream Hampton's stories are so hot. Why are her stories hotter than mine? Because she was not afraid to instigate some and be part of the story. So I'm like, so then I started to grow to be more like that. So then I was like, yeah, that's white Jesus. And immediately Jay flipped and the lady flipped and they were like, oh yeah, that's whack, man. <laughs> the, the girl is like, you need to tuck that in. And there's like nothing worse than getting dissed by a beautiful woman. And she's like, yeah, you need to tuck that stuff in. So, you know, that was the crux of the story and I haven't talked to Kanye since. <laughs> He's like, later for you, money. How have you seen celebrity change over the You were a reporter sort of before the internet, and now you're a reporter in the internet age. Um, I guess you were around when the internet, I don't know. You're a little older I, than I, I was around before the <laughs> internet. Thanks, Ray. <laughs> how have you seen it change since you've well, had like you a know, front row seat? When we were seat. riding dinosaurs, they were... <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure that I can suggest like a broad sort of change, but I mean, a lot of people are much more able to take hold of their fame and control of the message of their fame and sort of push out themselves and their image and what they want versus before you're much more at the mercy of the media. I mean, I was talking to Nas about his first album and it was like, a photograph in the 90s was massive because most people didn't get to see you outside of a photograph. You know, videos were played some, but not a ton, for, especially for hip hop. Um, for a, a Nas to get an interview in 94, 95 was, you know, on a major net was very, very difficult. So those there were like moments when you could suggest who you were now. You can push yourself out all the time. I just think the arc of things goes much faster. You know, like think about uh, the world for Killer Mike two, year, two weeks ago, right? <laughs> right? I mean, like, you know, in the past, like just the whole opportunity to do a horrendous interview on NRA TV and then do a pathetic apology on Facebook and then get roasted on Twitter, that was just not there before. And now all of this exists as part of what we think of Killer Mike, but everything moves so fast that in a month from now, you know, we'd be talking about, remember that thing, Killer Mike? You'd be like, I can't remember. So many things have happened since right. then. And the last question is, what is it like to be a journalist in the age of Trump? Mm. You know, I feel a great responsibility to be in the mix and saying what I think. And yet 
I feel a great exhaustion and I feel quite often there's something that journalists say, like all the takes are taken, like something happens in like every angle of this has been already deconstructed by everybody. So what are you going to what are you going to add? You know, like if the, think about something that like I mean, even just Trump in general, I could write an essay about how racist he is. But like everybody has said that from every possible angle, all right. the takes are taken. So then what do you have to add when everybody's already said it? Um, but I feel a great responsibility as those of, those of us who have a voice to continue banging the gong, continue to saying this is not normal, this is racist, you know, be outraged, resist, don't, don't relax. Um, I feel like people at some point will, not even left and right, we are all siloed out, but there's a middle that is fungible that was, could go either way that might say, that will say, this is too stressful, you know, I, whatever his policies, it's too stressful. Every time you go to the movies, you come out, you're like, oh, my God, did the world blow up while we were watching right. Black Panther again? And like, Are we Russia? Oh, is it North Korea? Right, is Russia right. here? Is, is, did he have an affair in the Oval Office, like right in front of the cameras? Or What stupid thing do you say? You wake up and you're stressed out about what's he going to tweet? And at some, there will be a sliver of people that will say, we can't have this anymore. It's just too stressful. And then and they'll vote and i mean because he only won by a sliver he acts like it was a landslide we don't need to convince trump voters that they are wrong right we need to excite people on our side and make them see there is something of value for you and coming out to vote for whoever the democrats put out and there's value for you in this and not just against him but this is what we're offering because i feel um, that the Republican Party, I know what they're offering. I know what they're about. I don't know what the Democratic Party is about. You know, the Republican Party wants to, to lower your taxes, to stop immigrants from coming, you know, continue to ignore climate change. What is the Democratic Party really about? Like, what, is the, what are we giving the, the constituents? What are we giving the voters? And that question needs to be clear if we're going to win an election. Boom. Give it up for Teray. And before you go, if you could just take two seconds while you're leaving and introduce yourself to the person next to you, we believe that the pod is also a family. And part of the beauty of being in a family is that you know people and that you can lean on them later. Uh, so meet the people next to you. Say hi to one person. We'll meet you out and to the left. Cool. Bye, y'all. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I love the book, The Power Broker, the epic biography of former New York City planner Robert Moses. So I'm breaking it down 100 pages at a time 
and talking to special guests about why this book matters, like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I actually think if it wasn't for Robert Moses, I probably wouldn't have run for Congress. Listen to 99% Invisible's breakdown of The Power Broker every month on the 99% Invisible podcast feed.